Good morning, friends. Please do open your Bible, if you haven't already, to Titus chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 11 to 14 today. And my hope is that we can continue our worship now. It doesn't end when the pastor to preach gets up here. Um, it's when the worship continues as God gives his authoritative statement about life and what we are to do based on what he has done. As God delivers that this morning, and as I have the chance to preach the word, um, your role is to receive it, even as Dave Spice said when he was up here, by actively listening and asking the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what have you done for me? And how can I grow today to better love you and know you and to live for you? Titus 2 is a chapter that helps you to answer some of those questions. And it's a part today of our Simply Amazing series. Simply Amazing refers to the all-sufficient grace of God. And as we continue to look at God's grace, what we will learn today is that there's an element of grace that applies to the discipline and the training that we go through in this life. The message title today is Grace for Training. And we're looking at this text of scripture, again, Titus chapter 2. If you look at that, let me read again those, uh, just a few verses. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Would you bow and pray? And let's just ask the Lord again to bless our time in the word. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture. And again, I pray that you would bless both the reading and the hearing of the word as has just been done, but also in the application as I seek to speak on your behalf. Lord, speak through me the message that you want for your people today. And we praise you for these verses that call our attention back to your grace and how it is at work in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. So a question for each of you. Are you a 26.2 person, a 13.1 person, or a 0.0, 0 person? Or are you the type that have no idea what I'm talking about? That would make you a 0, 0.0 person, more than likely. Um, I'm referring, of course, to these stickers I see on people's cars as I drive around Knoxville. 26.2, um, if they're being honest, is quite a badge of honor. That's a marathon. And 26.2 refers to the miles of the marathon. You may wonder why it's 26.2. You know, there's a myth that says there's a guy who ran in the Battle of Marathon 26.2 miles, delivered his message to his commander, then collapsed dead. Um, he only ran like 25 miles, if we're to believe the story is true. Now, how did it get to become 26.2? This is all an aside, nothing to do with the sermon, but you may find it interesting. It was actually uh, one of the queens of England back in the early 1900s, whoever was a queen back then, and I'm sorry, my British friends, I don't remember that statistic. She actually wanted her grandchildren from Windsor Castle to be able to see uh, the runners start their race. 
And in order for that to actually be done, they had to stretch back the starting point of the race uh, a mile point two, so that it then became 26.2. And since that time, runners in marathons all over the United States and the world use that as a, a, a length to which they have to go. I'll tell you, 26.2 or 25, I wouldn't make it to one without <laughs> collapsing. And I'd say, I'm, I'm a 0.0 guy. But I do know some of the running types. And I know what goes into the preparation that they have to do in order to get to that point. I know that if you're going to run in a marathon or even a half marathon, you've got to get up early in the morning. And you know what you have to do? Run. You have to separate off some time in the evening, and you have to run. And you got to do that if you're really serious at least three days a week. But if you're uber serious, you'll do it seven days a week. Because by the time you go months down the line and actually get to the marathon, if you haven't conditioned yourself, if you haven't trained yourself well, if you haven't motivated yourself with the glory of crossing the finish line, you won't make it. You know, I know that most of us will never compete in the Boston Marathon. You may not even make it to one of the half marathons here um, around town. But what I know is one spiritual truth that the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And it requires long-distance endurance. And the finish line is the glory of Christ that he shares with us and tells us is waiting for us. But the burden that I feel for myself and for you, my friends, is that so often we can treat the Christian life as if participation in it is more about like a 0.0 rather than a 26.2. Our thought is that we tend to know something of the grace of God as having forgiven us of all our sins. There's nothing we can add to the work of Christ. There's nothing that we can contribute to the forgiveness of our sins. Knowing that that's all of grace, it really, it, it doesn't ultimately matter how far we grow in godliness. And we may admire some of those people who serve the Lord, who grow in such a way and seem to preach or teach or go off into far away mission fields. And, and they're the 26.2 types. But, you know, honestly, I just don't think that's required for everybody. That might be like a, a special grace. But you know what? What I have discovered is that while, yes, our sins are forgiven, while all of our guilt is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in God's grace, we are accepted in Jesus Christ with no merit or any work that we bring. Nevertheless, there is a truth of Scripture that the same grace that saves you is the same grace that trains you for holiness. Grace for training. Towards what? Holiness. Again, I'll say it. The, the grace that saves you, and this is true for every Christian in this room today, and for those who are not Christians, not believers, maybe you're here, you're, you're here to find out what church is about, you're here to learn something, or maybe somebody just brought you here, and you're wondering why we gather. We gather because we're helpless people who have come to the one who can save us and rescue us, and we're learning today that the grace that saved us out of our sins is the same grace now that trains us for holiness. 
And I hope to give you the burden that this text gives, but also, as any good training will do, as grace does motivate us for the marathon of this Christian life. Our points today are these. Salvation is by grace. Training is by grace. And motivation is by grace. All towards the holiness that God demands. And that is the expectation for every single one of his people. We must grow. And we must stretch towards that aim and that goal that Christ has for us. How do we get there? Well, first of all, in verse 11, it starts with this statement, for the grace of God has appeared. And one of the important things about a verse that starts with for or therefore is to remember that that's a connection between what is to come and what has come. Right? What's come right before this? Um, the book of Titus was written as a letter to a man named Titus, right, who was ministering on the island of Crete. Crete uh, was really like the wild, wild west of the Greek empire, the Romans, as they settled in there. Why do I call it the wild, wild west? Because civilization was far off, and they were sending people down to Crete to settle it, and there were all kinds of roughnecks who would go, all kinds of people who were very immature or seeking adventure. And by the time they got to the island, um, it was very much like you would picture um, a saloon in the wild, wild west. You better have your weapon, and you better stand up for yourself. And if you want something, just go ahead and take it. You know, this was Crete. And God, in his grace, sent Titus and Paul there. And people got saved because they heard the gospel. And then they started to change. And so Titus was left there in Crete for a couple of reasons, that he would put in order what was left undone there in the church. And as the churches were formed, that they would have the right concept of what God was telling them and the truth to sustain them for the churches that would be planted. And those churches needed elders. So Titus's other role, according to Paul, was to appoint elders in every church. So then you get into the qualifications for elders. These elders are supposed to be godly individuals. But remember, this is Crete. One of the qualifications for elders is that they should not be violent. That's talking about getting into fistfights. One of the requirements for an, an elder on Crete, don't bring your bar fights into the church. Right, that was the requirement. This is Crete. And there's a, a thing that took place in the lives of the people. They started to experience change. And by the time you get to chi Titus chapter 2... He is giving instructions for how the people in the church, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, those who are serving as slaves in households, how they are to conduct their lives to the glory of Christ so that the outside world, this island of Crete, and all the roughnecks and people who are there for adventure, all of those who are lusting after all the things of life, would see these people and say, that is an attractive way to live. Why are they like that? And learn something behind the scenes that makes them like that is their great God and his transforming grace. But it can be overwhelming. You think about how it is to live that way in order to display grace to others around you. You can't just grit your teeth and try to be as holy as you can. That doesn't work for anybody. You can't pretend 
that you are more holy than you are. What Paul does for us here in one of the most succinct statements of all of his ministry message is that he tells us that behind the scenes of all the commands, behind the scenes of all that you are called to do is God and his grace at work in you. And it started with your salvation. The grace of God, it says, brings salvation. It's revealed bringing salvation for all people. You think about how the gospel of grace found you. Wherever you were and whatever you were doing, it took you by surprise. If it came at all, it wasn't because you were holy and looking to become more holy. It's because you were lost in your sin and you had no hope apart from God coming and intervening in your life, showing you the seriousness of your sin and the holiness of Jesus Christ and the great love of God in Christ for you because he sent his son to die for your sins. The gospel of grace invades a life and it's like a rescuer going into a mudslide, taking people out and bringing people back onto dry land, cleaning them up and transforming them so that they they are pulled from death and pulled back to life. Jesus took all of the sin of all who will come to him in faith. And when it says the gospel of God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, it doesn't mean that all people will be saved, but it means this message is so wonderful and the truth of Jesus is so powerful that you can't hold it back from anybody. It's got to go out to the world. You need to tell this to all people because the only hope that The only hope that all people have, wherever they are in the world, is Jesus. There's nobody who's holy enough to live without Jesus. We need him. And so, friends, the rest of this passage focuses on how this this grace that saves you is the grace that trains you. So how, how do we need to be thinking about this training? Point two is this, training by grace, and that's verse 12. We see there that it says, this grace that has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, is training us. Now, this word training is the Greek word paiduo. And I don't, that's not going to be a test later. You don't have to know that. Uh, But it's an important word that has both teaching and instruction and discipline that a parent would bring. The discipline has two sides. The discipline says, don't do that about things that they should not do. And the discipline says, do these things. You know, I, my wife and I are parents, and we're in the midst of this pie duo. We're instructing and raising up three kids. And one of the things I'm finding is, um, you know, the kids don't naturally think that discipline is wonderful. I, I don't know why. You know, we tell them, hey, this is for your good. When we, when we discipline you, it's, it's to help you. You know, and we, we sometimes, as parents, can remember the outcome of this. Sometimes we feel trapped kind of in the process. But God is a parent 
who never forgets the outcome and who is fully engaged in the process and is fully at work in each of us who have come to him in faith, dependent on him for salvation alone. Because the same grace that saves us is the grace that now trains us. This is what's going on. You know, just yesterday, I appreciate my son. He was asking me, you know, Dad, how can, we, how can someone know that they're saved? And so, you know, I thought about that, and I just answered, well, we, we know that you're saved because if you've come to Jesus, he promises if you, if you come to him, he will never cast you out. Amen. Those who believe in him, he will never turn away. And he thought about that some more and asked me, how can you know that you're still saved? And that's a good question. And as I thought about that some more, the, the one thing that came to me was in all my life, the way that I know I'm still a Christian is because God, my Father, disciplines me. He won't let me stay in sin. If I ever wander into it because of an appeal that I get out there in the world or the power of the devil or it's just my own sinful flesh, God won't let me stay there. No matter what, the conviction that he brings and the help that he brings me through his word, I know that he's faithful to continue that work of rescuing me time and time again. So much so that I can see that no matter what happens in my life, I have the grace of God underneath me. And the process of discipline that I endure, I'm learning is for my good. And that's what this process of grace discipline is for each of us here this morning. What is the training like? Well, first of all, it trains us to say no to certain things and yes to others. Say no, the text says, to ungodliness and worldly passions. And on the alternative side, we'll say yes to self-control, righteousness, and godliness. But first, let's look at this. When God works in the life of one of his children... He is so intent on their growth and holiness that he will not allow them to continue in patterns of ungodliness and worldly passions. What's ungodliness? Let's start with that. Ungodliness, it, it, it concerns how you relate to God. So on the opposite side of this is godliness. Godliness doesn't necessarily mean a bunch of things you do that make you a Christian. It doesn't mean that at all. Godliness means that you are alive to God. You pay attention to him. You worship him. You confess your sins to him and trust him to forgive you and to keep you. You love him. Godliness is love for God. Ungodliness, then, is not the wicked behavior of the world, but it's a person who might be the nicest guy, takes care of his family, mows his lawn, maybe even a little strip of your lawn to gives you the tomatoes out of his garden, tells, talks about the weather and UT sports, but doesn't think one thought about God. That's an ungodly person. Ungodliness is living life like it works without God. And God, if he's there, maybe he can give us a little one-up every once in a while, but that's not really necessary because in the life of an ungodly person, life works without God. That's ungodliness. God says, if those thoughts come to a Christian, 
His work of grace undergirding them helps them to reject those thoughts and to say, no, no. Friends, I'll tell you, there's enough ungodliness left in every one of you that would still treat God as if he is an option or maybe an add-on to your otherwise okay life. But God is not content to leave you there. He is so marvelous in all of his displays of beauty and grace that to miss it is hell. But to know it and to know him is eternal life. And his intent is to help you. When you're living life without him, he won't let you continue in it, but bring something into your life that will cause you to recognize living this way without any regard for God. I can't continue in this. No, I won't do this anymore. Likewise, we say no to worldly passions. Now, passions aren't bad. You know, sometimes, you know, it's morphed into what automatically becomes something that has to do with some kind of sexual sin. It can be, but that's only when it is coupled with something like this word, worldly. Worldly concerns those things that are mentioned in 1 John 2.15. When John says there, all these things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, are not of the Father, but are of the world. What are those things? Well, the lust of the flesh, I got bodily cravings, and the world that I live in never says no to anything. Whatever I feel is a legitimate desire and craving, and I'm going to get it one way or another. That's the world we live in. You know, it could be as seemingly innocent as when my wife recently took the kids while I was working to see a fire truck, and they were in line to get up on the fire truck, and a little girl behind one of our daughters um, saw our daughter going up, and she says, why does she get to go up there? How come she gets to go first? I don't know if it was that bad. My wife says it was that bad, all right? You know, what what causes that? Well, he said, well, that's just a little kid. You know, when that's a a 35-year-old, that gets really bad. But you know what? Our world is, is nurturing that. It's cultivating that. And it comes from this message that you say no to nothing because it helps you to realize yourself. Whatever you desire, you go for it. Whatever you feel, do it. But then God comes along and does this remarkable ministry of saying, when it comes to those worldly passions that have nothing to do with my glory and my will for you, you are to say no. Pastor Al Cage and I talk about this. One of the vows that we made here last week as elders is that we will submit ourselves to our fellow elders. Um, Many of our elders thus far on the interim elder team, would talk to one another and help one another and ask questions for elder accountability. And one of the things that Pastor Al and I do together is talk about ways in which God is helping us to say no to envy, anger, lust, because the same things that afflict anybody in the church will afflict these elders that took these vows last week. And we want to be serious about how we're responding to the grace of God. If God's grace is working in us, 
then we want to learn to say no and to do that better and better. Likewise, we want to say yes, yes to self-control, righteousness, and to godly living. And so that's the next thing. What does it mean to be self-controlled? Well, really, it's what it says, a controlled self. This is you when it's just you and nobody else is around. Will you say yes to being self-controlled when it comes to drink, sex, and all the things that tend to occupy the thinking of modern people? Will you learn to be self-controlled when it comes to binge-watching television shows and the kind of television shows that have nothing to do with Christ? Will you have self-control? You see, this word is so important, and it comes everywhere in Scripture, and it concerns your integrity before God when there's no one else around. Only the grace of God can transform us to say yes to self-control when we don't have to be self-controlled. That's the grace of God at work. Likewise, to be righteous means in your dealings with others that you are fair, that you do things right, you don't cut corners, you don't try to get ahead of somebody else, you don't try to push them down, but you're, you're righteous toward them. This is about your relationships toward other people. And you are godly. Meaning that your orientation is that everything is brought back to, is this God's will? And all that I do, and to say yes to God, yes to his will, yes to his ways. These are things that God wills for us. I said that our goal is holiness. The goal of grace as it disciplines us is not just to make us a little bit better. The goal of God at work in you, undergirding you by his grace and supporting you, pointing out the things to say no to, telling you what to say yes to, is for the goal that you would be holy. What is holiness? J.C. Ryle, a pastor in England during the 1800s, who incidentally had a really great beard. <laughs> People have asked me, Joe, why do you have a beard? Those who come and ask me that. Of all the competing interests still, Duck Dynasty, you know, biker, you know, hobo, you know, what, what is it about your beard? I love these guys in the 1800s. And J.C. Ryle, I commend him to you for both his beard and for his gospel ministry. He wrote a book called Holiness that I'd like you to consider sometime and to get and read. Listen to what he had to say, and I'll put it up here on the screen. Um, holiness is the habit, the habit, growing to say no and yes, of being of one mind with God according as we find his mind described in Scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. I love this helpful sentence. He who most entirely agrees with God, he is the most holy man. Let's put woman there too. I mean, she who most entirely agrees with God, she is the most holy woman. Holiness is not about getting a track record of doing a bunch of good and godly things so that you can stack them all up in a scale and say, I'm holy. 
I've made it. No, the holiness standard is God himself. And the way to become holy is to get down in the word of God and to submit ourselves to reading about this great, holy God who is not like anyone else, who stands alone in his glory. And submitting ourselves to him brings to us a transformation. Remember, as God supports us underneath with his grace, we continue to see the transformation take place time after time as we grow to hate what he hates and love what he loves because we love him. The training that we go under is so important. And I'm concerned here at West Park that so often we ask questions of the Bible more like, what does this mean? Which is a good question to ask. We're good at that here at West Park. But a more important question that we need to ask is, what do I need to do because of what this means? And friends, I ask you, are you any good at saying no? Have you lost the ability to say no to the ungodliness and the worldly passions? What about saying yes to a life worth living to the glory of Jesus Christ and experiencing the goodness and the joy that he's given you? Are you exercised in saying yes? Are you getting others around you who know of the grace of God and won't put up new laws for you, but will hold you accountable to the transforming grace of God that disciplines so that we would be holy? You know, the greatest motivations we can have, friends, are the motivations that God himself gives us. And as we close today, any good trainer will bring the motivation. You know, some of the, the runners in marathons, you know, if they run for the Boston Marathon, they might put on the colors of the Boston Marathon. I think it's blue and yellow. I could be wrong. And they go around and they, they run in those colors. They remember and they're motivated by an identity that they have that's connected back to that race. It becomes all-consuming in their drive, their pursuit of the glory. And they need all the motivation and the help that they can get. Jesus knows that. You know, there's a story um, that many of you probably have read. It's called Pilgrim's Progress. It's written by John Bunyan. It's a great book. Um, there's many editions of it, many different ways that it's been interpreted uh, for modern readers. But here's one of the things that I most appreciate about this story. In one of the scenes, the main character, Pilgrim, who later on becomes Christian, he gets saved, and the burden of his sin rolls off his back at the cross. He knows, he's, he knows he's saved, but he has a long journey ahead of him through many dangers, and many things that are going to happen are going to lead him into trouble. And along the way, he's refreshed in this place called the House of the Interpreter. So he gets to the House of the Interpreter, and inside that house, he will see many different scenes, many illustrations of the Christian life. And those are designed to help him along the way. One of the illustrations that he meets when he walks through with interpreter is this wall that's on fire. The wall is burning hot, but there's a guy there with buckets of water and he just keeps dumping water on the walls. No matter how many water buckets he dumps on the walls and throws up there, the wall never loses the flame. 
And so the way the Pilgrim's Progress works, you know, Pilgrim or Christian, he asks, what's this all about? And then the interpreter says, you tell me. And then Christian will say, well, I don't know what's going on here. I won't bore you with those kind of details in this narrative. But what the interpreter says is, you see that wall there and the fire that's on it, that's the passion that a, a believer has for the Lord. And do you see that man throwing buckets of water on it? That's Satan using every means he can to extinguish the flame. And so Christian wonders, why is the fire never going out? Well, interpreter says, come with me behind the wall. So they walk to the other side. And they look and they see there's, an, there's another man on that side with oil that he's continuing to add to the fire on the wall such that the flame on the other side never goes out no matter how many buckets of water get thrown against that flame. And Christian asks, well, who is this man? And interpreter says, that's the Lord Christ. No matter what a believer goes through, because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, pouring the oil onto the flame, the fire will never go out. And so they learn as they go that the wall is there to symbolize that we can't always see what's behind the scenes. But Jesus knows, and he's at work. And Jesus is the motivator. Jesus is the trainer, and he gives us strong motivations. The first is this, the motivation of our future hope. Our future hope. Look at verse 13. Waiting. You know, so far it's the grace of God bringing salvation, training us, and now we see this word waiting. There's this eager expectation that's, that's in the heart of every true believer. That when you think about the future, you have this hope that you will be with Jesus. And that, like we sung in the song this morning, heaven is our home. This hope will never be taken away. Heaven is our home. That's a testimony that Jesus gives to every one of his people. It's described here as the blessed hope. Blessed means happy. If you want a happy hope this morning, then go back to the promises of Jesus Christ. He's given you this hope within you. And you might feel this morning like you can't feel it. Remember the illustration that no matter what is being poured out onto your fire, the Lord Jesus is behind the flame giving fuel so that you will not extinguish your faith and you will not extinguish your hope. The promise here is that our blessed hope, another way of saying this, while it's blessed and happy for us, it's glorious for Jesus. Where in verse 11, grace bringing salvation appeared, meaning that Jesus came to rescue and save and seek the lost. When he comes back again, he comes back in all his glory, revealed for who he truly is, Savior and God, so that our worship of him for all eternity is focused on his identity. The reason that any of us can endure in the marathon of the Christian race is because we have been rescued by a Savior God, one who came to us in our weakness and one who knows what we're made of and sustains us with his grace to help us say no 
and to help us have greater delights that replace the desires for this world. Another motivation that the Lord gives is the motivation of Christian identity. Christian identity. What does it mean to be a Christian? And how is being a Christian a motivator for our lives of holiness before God? Well, looking at verses 14, you know, just mainly verse 14 connected back to 13, we see that the Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us. And I want to stop there for a minute and talk about one issue of our identity now. We are his people. We are his people. We read in verse 14 that Jesus gave himself for us to get for himself a people for his own possession. This is one of the, the purpose statements for why Jesus died. Why did Jesus die? To get you and to make you a part of his people. The Apostle Paul never got over this. This is one of the expressions that he loves to use, that Jesus gave himself for us. Didn't hold anything back. When it came to ultimately living the life of saying no to ungodliness and worldly desires, that was Jesus. And to say yes to live a self-controlled, righteous life, godly, all life long, that was Jesus. And yet he gave himself for me, a sinner, who doesn't know and can't in my own strength say no to anything ungodly or worldly or yes to anything of self-control, righteousness, or godliness. He gave himself for me so that I would belong now to him. My destiny is in the hands of Jesus Christ, and so is yours if you are a believer here this morning. You belong to Jesus. He controls what happens in your life. Second motivation of your identity, we are his redeemed people. We are his redeemed people. It says in, in verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. To redeem us from all lawlessness. I'm impressed by this word redemption and what it means for us. We have been taken out of the dominion of sin, out away from the controlling power of sin. And we have been transferred by the death of Christ and the forgiveness that we have in him into the kingdom of his grace. And that's why it says redeemed from all lawlessness. Lawlessness is the wild, wild west. Living according to your desires, doing whatever seems right to you at any given time. It doesn't matter what other people think or how they might be affected as long as you realize yourself. Jesus took you out of that, my friends, if you are a believer, and put you in the kingdom of his grace so that the power that dominated your life no longer dominates you. You can still hear the, the appeal of sin over there. And this is the mystery of life right now, where we are still left here between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, working out this sanctification and the difficulty of it. There's trouble that we face. There are trials that come our way, 
And a lot of those come because although we're here in the kingdom of grace, we still hear the appeal of the old master, our sin master, slave master, calling us back to enjoy the choicest fruits that are there in that dominion. And if we would go there, we recognize that once again, all that over there does not bring us delight anymore, but it actually is a misery whenever we listen to it. This is what it means to be a believer. And I get back up from scripture on this, that you can be delivered from all lawlessness and still listen to it and still take part in it. But nonetheless, you are still in the kingdom of grace. You don't get taken out. How do you reconcile this? The work of Jesus on your heart is such that the siren call, the, the witches and all of those over here in this kingdom that promise you spells to satisfy everything in your life, they will lose the power of their allure and their voice as you hear the voice of your shepherd. And as you learn that sin does not satisfy you, but it actually now is an affliction, an affliction that the Lord continues to heal and continues to work out in you so that you learn to say no and that you learn to say yes. The identity that we have and the position that we have in Christ will never be removed. So how do you live according to this grace? How do, you, how do you take advantage of it? Well, the wrong response would be when you sin to simply roll up your sleeves and try to do more good things so you don't feel so bad anymore. Living according to grace and recognizing that you are in the kingdom of grace means that you believe God's promise that you will never be cast out, that you will always belong to him, that even if you have sinned, that you are still his people. You belong to him, that you are redeemed. And you remember, a redeemed person doesn't act this way. A redeemed person doesn't do these things. Instead of concluding that maybe you're not a redeemed person, recognize that believers get messed up in the temptations of sin and the activity of sin, but Christians do not become again in bondage to sin. So if you have sinned, Recognize that, according to grace, you will never be cast out. But the way to go forward is to confess that sin and to seek the Lord again and to believe him in his cleansing power that Jesus has redeemed you from all that lawlessness and that you are secure in grace. This isn't cheap. This costs Jesus everything. And your position in grace is what sustains you for the lifelong endurance of the marathon of the Christian life. So much so that Jesus not only took you away from all that lawlessness, but it says that he also purified you so that we are his purified people. We are his purified people. You know, I think of David in the Psalms when he talks about how he sinned. In the Psalm 51, he says, Lord, cleanse me with hyssop. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. His desire is that the inside of him be scrubbed clean. And as a Christian, you no doubt have been there before. 
the sin that afflicted you, that burdens you now, that you hate. Yeah, you listen to the siren call, but if you're honest, you hate your sin because it does not honor the Lord and doesn't draw you closer to him. But you call out to the Lord, Lord, clean me, cleanse me, and I will be clean. And Jesus says, the position you stand in grace is purified in the Son. No matter where you've come from today, you can go back to him again according to your identity. You are pure because of the record of Jesus Christ. And that is applied to you again and again and is the basis of the forgiveness of God even now that will never be shaken and never changed. All these things lead to the good works that come, people zealous for good works, the text says, and Jesus desires that of all his people. And so my friends, we conclude today in thinking about what's ahead of us. Each of us has the responsibilities to listen to God and to say and to learn to be better at saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes toward a lifestyle of sobriety, self-control, of righteousness and godliness. All the while knowing this, that the motivation to do so and the power to do so comes from Christ who continues to add oil to the flame. And he will sustain you. He's the one who's pushing you forward as the discipline takes place in your life. He's faithful to begin the work and he's faithful to end it. I have one last word to all of you elders who are here this morning. If you're an elder, would you raise your hand? There's a handful of us here this morning. Brothers, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. As you took your vows last week, the work in front of us is a grace-based ministry. And may no one take away from West Park Baptist Church the role of the elders to set before the people of God the vision of God's grace in Christ. Don't let anyone disregard this. Brothers, don't let anyone tell you that there is a, an apostle 2,000 years ago who wrote these things that is irrelevant today. These things are profitable for people. And may God give us grace to preach them with authority because the authority is this word of God. Now, everyone else, as I spoke to the elders, the elders are a means of God's grace to you. Seek them out. Talk with them. Share with them the ups and downs of your life. And listen as they teach and preach to you and counsel you with the word of God. They are gifts and further motivators for your growth in godliness. As I close, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for the elders and ask God to continue this work of grace in our lives. Our good Father, how we thank you and praise you for the work of grace that didn't just end after it began with salvation, but continues all through life. Thank you that the fire does not go out because Christ is faithful to keep it lit. Help us today to again give our lives to you. You've paid it all, our Lord. All to you I owe. Let us sing this now.